Thank you for listening to Bakersfield Observe, the podcast with Richard Bean. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Centric Healthcare and King Door Company. Welcome to Bakersfield Observed with Richard Bean, a podcast for and about Bakersfield and Kern County. Richard's guests are newsmakers, influencers, and personalities who address topics of interest to you and your neighbors and your community. The discussion is fast, informative, and always civil. Now, here's your host, Richard Bean. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to episode 11 of the new Bakersfield Observe podcast, recorded right here at American General Media offices off California Avenue and Highway 99 in downtown Bakersfield. This podcast airs weekly, and it complements the work of my Bakersfield Observe blog. You can access this podcast via Spotify or wherever you access your podcast. You can also get it at kernradio.com. Look, the idea behind this podcast has been simple from the beginning, just like the radio show was. Let's provide a forum for our community, the Bakersfield community, to gather to discuss the issues that confront us all. Some of them are not. Some of these topics are not easy to discuss. We think it's important to shed a light on that. And today, we're going to spend our time talking to Mr. Patrick Wall. Now, Mr. Wall is a former Roman Catholic priest and Benedictine monk. He has been working on behalf of victims of clergy sexual abuse since 2002. Mr. Wall has a bachelor's degree in philosophy and a master's of divinity degree from St. John's University in Minnesota. Mr. Wall also has pursued graduate studies at the University of Minnesota, the Gregorian University, and Cardiff University in canon law. He is now an advocate at Jeff Anderson and Associates in St. Paul, Minnesota. Patrick Wall, welcome to the show. Thank you. Patrick, I ask you here to help us understand, help me understand more about how the church has or has not dealt with deviant priests. Of course, the case lo- we have a case locally, of course, where former priest Monsignor Craig Harrison faces multiple accusation- accusations of sexual abuse. And his name recently appeared on a list of credibly accused priests released by the Diocese of Fresno. I invited you here, Mr. Wall, so you can help us understand more about how all this works and how important this is. I want to welcome you back to the podcast. Start a little bit. Can we start with a little background on yourself, Patrick, your role in the priesthood, why you left, where you grew up, and how you got involved in helping expose these wayward priests? Sure. Uh, I was a kid that grew up in southeastern Minnesota and wanted to uh, get a good education, but I also wanted to play college football. So I, hmm. I ended up going to St. John's, a really good Division three school at the time, and it turned also out to be the largest Benedictine monastery in North America. And I got the religion bug while I was in college and, um, and, and felt a, a true call. And so I thought I was going to be a, a monk, a professor, a priest, and a college football coach, to be <laughs> honest with you. And none of that turned out because in the 1990s, the beginning of the explosion of the child sexual assault cases. And so every assignment I had as a monk, which uh, actually my first assignment to work on a child abuse case was 30 years ago this month. Oh and uh, all six assignments that the abbots of St. John's gave me were basically to follow child abusers and replace them after they had been pulled out. 
Well, how, how did that happen that you ended up being thrown into that type of work as a monk? Because we covered parishes. Obviously, we have a, you know, had a university, uh, high school, and, you know, and uh, parishes all, all around the Midwest. And um, so I got sent in, in order to follow these guys. And then I ended up on as a, a canon lawyer on the tribunal in St. Paul, Minnesota. And so and I was also on the finance council for the Archdiocese of St. Paul, Minnesota. So I got to see how the money worked. I got to see how the the you know the history and the litigation uh, worked, and it, and how it really worked in the parishes. And so when you go to laicize a priest, and we we laid this out in priests, sex, and secret codes about 20 years ago, when uh, Father Doyle and and uh, Richard Seip and I published this, we, we you have to go through and lay out the law, and the, if you follow the internal law of the church. It takes you back to the first century, to the Didache, literally the first catechism, is when they impose the first penalties so that if a priest sexually assaults, rapes, or sodomizes a a minor child, they are to be thrown out of the church. Hmm. Basta. Easy. Right, right, right. right. But of course, what happens is that the bishops and the popes have never, never actually followed their own internal rules. And why is that? Scandal, straight up. They they avoid scandal at all costs because scandal uh, means loss of parishioners, means loss of money, means loss of prestige. And um, you've got to remember, ultimately, the church is an institution, a public institution that depends on their reputation. And if they can hide that piece of their reputation and and make themselves out as this holy beacon of morality, um, then they get more parishioners, and they grow. Boy, that's awfully cynical uh, way to look at it, I suppose. So so a lot of these these scandals are simply be, because of, of greed and money and, and, and covering up crimes due to if somebody's a good fundraiser or knows how to how to bring in the money, then it, it's, it's, it's looked the other way? Absolutely. The, the better the fundraiser that priest is and the better at, you know, at, at being able to cover up his, his, pers- his crimes that are in secret, then you know, they, they won't touch him. And consequently, a lot of these priests never get moved, too. They, they'll get assigned to one particular place and they'll turn into a little demigod in their own in parish. Right, right. When when you went into the priesthood and you became a Benedictine monk, did you have any idea as a young man how widespread this problem was within the church? I was absolutely clueless like every other person in the 1980s and early 1990s. And, you know, even in the early 90s when I started working on these cases, I thought these were isolated incidents because— they're all fired walled off from one another. You know, there's no public information. And the information that's sitting in the secret archives of each of these different dioceses and the various religious institutes, all of that is, you know, is uh, in restricted areas. So it's not as if someone could even come to discover it. And it was only after, you know, working on hundreds of cases that, you know, even I, not very bright, came to the conclusion that this is a chronic 
widespread multi-millennial problem. Oh, boy. Uh, when did you leave the, ch- uh, the church? 1998. And how long have you been involved in, uh, with, with Anderson Associates? Uh, about 10 years. Okay. Yeah. Very good. One of the reasons, of, of course, we're talking to you, Patrick, we're talking to Patrick Wall here, uh, is we have our own case here, and I know you're familiar with it, with it, for a former priest named Craig Harrison, who was wildly popular. I want to I wanna run down some, some bullet points of this case, and then my question to you would be, uh, it's hard for, when, when one of these happens in your community, you think, are we the only community where this happens? Is this unique here? Is this somehow different here? We had a priest who was wildly popular. Now, Patrick, I'm not from Bakersfield, but I've been here over 25 years. I had never lived in a community where a religious figure seemed to be so universally loved. Very charismatic, very... Uh, uh, every time you turn on the TV or the radio, he's there across denominations, wildly popular. Uh, and yet after the revelations, there was probably predictably a total closing of the ranks to defend Mr. Uh, Mr. Harrison. Uh, how common is this? Is this common that when these things are, are revealed that there's a natural reaction to say, this can't be in this case, Father Craig, he ministered to my father on his dying, on his deathbed. He married us. He was good to us. He's inspired us. This can't be. Is that common in all of these cases? It is pretty universal across the country and across the globe on cases I worked on because these are white-collar crimes where they're committed in, in the act of the, the, the work that the person is doing. And usually the perpetrator is very dynamic. They are charismatic. They're really good at what they do. And that's their number one defense, right? Because mm-hmm. they are uh, such a positive uh, influence in the job that they're doing. They have this incredible dark side that they are uh, focused on. And the the hard thing, you know, even if you look at you know the other 50 plus uh, perpetrators that the diocese recently re- revealed, um, or you you look at the neighboring diocese, these guys are dynamic and they were well loved, and oftentimes they're the best preachers, right? They're really good at what they do. Mm-hmm. It's just they have a fixation. In, in, in acting out the way that they act out. And the only way that the, the public ever comes to find this out is when finally something breaks and there's some kind of a, either a criminal or a civil legal action that exposes the secret archives that then uh, shows the public what all the previous bishops, you know, going all the way back to Mahoney uh, in Fresno, uh, knew during the entire tenure of these various perpetrators. Hmm, that's interesting. In this case, in the Father Craig case, his popularity was such. Here we are uh, two years later after the after uh, he was removed from, from the priesthood or suspended by the church, and people are pretty much still in their corners. I mean, you have very, very prominent people in this community. I mean, leaders of this community, influential people in this community who are saying, there's just 
no way. And in fact, the line seems to be from the feedback we get from social media, the defense, one of the defense lines seems to be not only these, these kids or these, these men lining up, uh, to, to make this a payday for them by bringing forth these false, uh, accusations, but they also blame this on, in this case, B- Bishop Brenham or the former Bishop Steinbach. And the line is they were jealous of Father Craig here, that Father Craig has such enormous popularity and was able to raise so much money to better the church that the bishops are jealous. Is that a line of defense you have heard before? Oh, sure. And, you know, uh, it, this is very similar to Congress. You know, people hate Congress, but they generally love their congressperson, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the <laughs> it's the same kind of thing where um, that's why the, the legal system is... Uh, a very prudent and and methodical way to be able to pull all this out once people get a chance to see the documents that the diocese has maintained for decades gets to see the pattern and practice that's there gets to see the testimony you know and and that's why trials in in these cases are important because then they get to hear from the various bishops themselves and the various vicar generals on what they knew and when they knew it, and um, and to in order to be able to, for people to come to this conclusion, because nobody wants their priest to be the bad actor. Yeah, they uh, just don't, right. and and nobody ever thought this was possible because this history has been hidden from them for centuries, so they don't have. They weren't given the skills, they weren't given the background, they weren't given the context to be able to see what was going on right in front of them. Hmm. So sometimes this is a very painful uh, experience for the community to go through where all of these things were happening in front of them, but they didn't have the eyes to see, they didn't have the ears to hear uh, what was right in front of them. Right, right. How do, where does this go? You said that the public doesn't have access to some of the evidence or some of the, they can't connect the dots on, on how the, the bishops of the church reacted or some of the evidence before them. Is this evidence that would come out in, the norm, in a civil trial where a priest has been accused of wrongdoing? Is this stuff that will later come out? For example, there were two lawsuits filed against Father Craig just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, that's the normal course. That in you know whether it's a criminal trial or a civil trial, the the course of discovery brings all those documents, uh, uh, you know, to the surface, and then the the court is the one that makes determinations on relevance and you know what what is uh, uh, part and parcel to be able to to prove or disprove the the stories and to test them, both with cross examination of of all the parties involved. In the local, are you are you are you pretty familiar with the the Craig Harrison case here? I have some familiar with yes. Okay, I was going to ask you how common this was because in the course of this thing in the last two years, at one time, uh, Craig Harrison's attorneys had actually filed suit against the church itself. That that suit was later dismissed, and from a layman's standpoint, uh, I looked at that and thought, wow. Uh, one way, you know, you're not going to get your job back is probably by suing your ex-boss after you've been after been discharged. Is this common for priests to sue the church? 
It's not common, but it happens in almost every jurisdiction on, on uh, a small number of cases. Uh, every, everybody reacts differently um, to the, the charges, and that's the, the way that uh, Monsignor Harrison responded to his. When, when you look at, from what you know of the, of the, the Monsignor Harrison case, does it, does it follow in a predictable way of a lot of the cases you've seen over the years? And if so, what would those be? Well, I can't comment directly on, on the case. I think the better way to look at it is, and what will help the community the most, is to look at you know, the, the nearly 60 uh, names that the diocese recently re- released and to, to see some of the common uh, patterns that are there and to see how deep the knowledge of the diocese goes because it goes back into the you know, 40s and 50s where they were uh, removing priests and they were able through the process of, of having outside people come in, having the, you know, the former FBI people come in and actually look at the church records and go through them and then send it to the review board to look at it again so it was double vetted, and then um, the diocese put put out these various names um, as the as people with credible accusations of childhood sexual assault. And so there is a there's a long pattern and practice within the diocese. And then one of the things that litigation is so good at is to be able to uh, to compare and contrast and, and to show the, how the patterns either match or the patterns don't match, and to, to show exactly what the bishops knew and when they knew it. Well, that's interesting. We're talking about, we're talking to Pat, Patrick Wall here, a former Roman Catholic priest. He's been involved in uh, tracking down sex and testifying with uh, sex sex tra- uh, traffickers for Anderson Associates in, in um, Minneapolis. Um, Mr. Wall, the list of credibly accused priests, there was a lot made of it here, and, and particularly the fact that the Fresno Diocese was the last diocese in California to release that. Can you give me a little history on how long has—is this something, uh, compiling a list of people who have been credibly accused in your, in your diocese, was that, was that mandated by law, or who came up with that idea? I can't imagine the Church came up with that. Well, Fresno is not the last. Uh, actually, San Fran- Archdiocese of San Francisco is the last wow. California okay. diocese and still has not produced a list. And um, don't be surprised that there's some crossover for Fresno with once the San Francisco list comes out as well. Hmm. But the um, these lists are response to litigation and um, in in putting these out. These this has been a calls by survivors over the years forcing the various religious orders and the various dioceses to produce these lists. So they started trickling out in the early 2000s as a response to being sued, and then also in response to various grand jury investigations. The grand jury investigation that really accelerated it for the United States was, was the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report. You may recall that uh, from a couple years ago, Josh Shapiro, as the Attorney General of Pennsylvania, put uh, put together a whole team that went through the various archives of the, of the various dioceses 
in Pennsylvania, and they found hundreds of priests um, that were never previously disclosed, uh, including information uh, regarding Cardinal McCarrick. And so that was a earth-shattering yeah. moment, I believe, that really scared some of these Catholic bishops across the country uh, into uh, to responding. And so they have. They have slowly uh, let this trickle out. And in the process of uh, letting this trickle out, you get to see um, you know, the various types of files that the diocese has and, ha- and maintains in perpetuity. Um, whether it's you know files on priests that have been refused faculties, priests that have um, you know complaint letters, priests that have been been uh, um, you know have had criminal investigations against them, um, and and especially the what the bishops had in their personal files, and then what were in the secret archives, the archives that are extremely limited to a very few set of eyes in the diocese and. In the combination of all this, you know, we went from in the early 2000s knowing about several hundred priests around the country that uh, were uh, uh, accused of childhood sexual abuse. Remember, in 2002, the bishops came up with a policy of zero tolerance. Mm-hmm. That was the new national policy. And in that year, over 700 priests were removed from ministry in the United States, and people were in shock, right? Right. But what has happened in the release of these several hundred lists now is that over 7,000 priests have been put on a credibly accused list uh, for violating a child since 1950 in the United States. And that, uh, that alone, I'm sure the vast majority of, of folks uh, in your listening audience didn't know that has happened because it's been a slow trickle, but that to me, would inform your understanding as to whichever particular case in Fresno you're looking at. All right. Now, the list, how important is this list? I mean, does this, it, what, when your name is on that list, when there, uh, a priest's name appears on any credibly accused list, it, is, that, is that the diocese saying, we believe this guy did it, or it likely did it, or could have done it? What does it mean? They, uh, it's, um, each diocese has a different definition for it, and that's why you, you can't uh, say anything with any universal blanket particular statement. You'd have to go to exactly what Bishop Brennan said and meant when he put out the list of credibly accused. But what I can say is that these lists are very important for survivors of childhood sexual assault by a priest or a bishop because the vast majority of them never come forward and they suffer in silence. Hmm. The list provides them tremendous solace and relief so that they now know that they were not the only one. Because most of them, that's what they sit there. They, they sit there and ruminate their entire lives thinking that they were the only one that was violated by this priest. How... We talk a lot about the reluctance of these uh, victims and people to come forward to make make their their accusations, and I, you certainly see it when prominent members of the community will shout them down and say, "Well, you're just out for money," uh, or, or, or or wherever. How, it, it, w- w- if they view this as somebody is looking out 
for me. And it it is that important. Have you seen these lists being being released that have encouraged people to come forward? Yeah, it encourages people to come forward and make police reports and and gives law enforcement, you know, the the notice that they need because you got to remember the church never hardly ever called the police. They never uh, gave any information to the police of what they knew. And so this gives an opportunity for uh, survivors to do that. It also gives uh, an opportunity for survivors to reach out and, and do some uh, healing within their own family because the, you know, the vast majority are never going to come to the legal system. But what, they, they can, what the list does is it starts that conversation so they can start to heal internally because then the family can sit around and say, hey, the bishop said that you know our, the uh, our, our priest that was here in our parish is credibly accused you know and and uh we've we've had our brother or sister who's been saying for years that you know what was done to them wasn't right or you know or you know they've been acting out and you know one of one of the brothers or sisters has has um uh, their life has just been off mm. is the only way maybe to to put it and maybe it's time to have a conversation with them to, to see if anything happened to them so they can start to heal. All right. You know, these you, you talk about the personnel files that the church holds where that would be a repository of any complaints against any priest or perhaps if a priest had been moved around for whatever reasons. Or and you, you mentioned the secret archives. Are these, uh, are, is, is it your impression that these records in in any given diocese are number one complete and number two accurate. It would seem to me, playing devil's advocate, that if you had, if if you had a a diocese or wherever where people were covering up and moving things around and didn't want people to find it, that you may have they may have have uh, cleansed the the personnel files, so to speak. Has that has that been a problem? Yes, spoliation has been a problem in in certain locations. Um, the the problem is that there these documents are in multiple locations, especially mm-hmm. with a religious order uh, priest or bishop. Um, the other problem, of course, is that the church has been running secret treatment facilities for you know half a century, and so all of these records that are diagnoses of pedophilia and ephebophilia. Those di- those documents, you know, from Jemez Springs, the servants of the Paraclete, or from the St. Luke Institute, or from the Menninger Clinic, or the House of Affirmation, the various facilities that they have, you know, those documents exist. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that the memories of sending these priests off for treatment because of complaints, all of these guys still exist. Uh, I mean, you have you have the ability, for instance, in taking the deposition of Cardinal Mahoney, we would have the ability to take the deposition of a former vicar general, former auxiliary bishop of Fresno, who has personal knowledge going back to 1965. Mm, oh boy, right, right, and and as well as all the other older priests and vicar generals, those people that that were, had control over these particular records, they're the ones who would have, you know, personally sent them off. Remember, don't forget, Cardinal Mahoney is a trained clinical 
uh, social worker, mm-hmm. and he actually taught at Fresno State at, at, uh, for a period of time in the clinical social work department. And so these are really intelligent, learned people that know the signs. They can read the signs in front of them, unlike the, you know, the rest of us who are just a regular, untrained uh, lay people w- without any psychological training. And so that's, that's the difference um, that exists in this type of litigation because the memories are available in people the the memories are available in and through the documents and and also you know many of the perpetrators still are around and um i don't know if you've ever interviewed perpetrators before i've i've interviewed a lot of them um and they uh they are generally pretty forthcoming about their disorder really they know they're wrong they hmm. know they are psychologically off and um and they're pretty straightforward about it. You mentioned these secret uh, treatment facilities. I'm fascinated by that, and I, had, I, I, I have heard that. How did the church use these things? How long did they exist, and were they looking? What were they looking to do? What were they treating the 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 priests who were accused of uh, sexual abuse? What were they trying to cure them of? Well, before World War II, what they would do is they would use monasteries, like my old monastery at St. John's in Collegeville. There were you know, dozens of diocesan priests that were in trouble um, that were sent there for various reasons, you know, either uh, affairs with adults or alcohol or child sexual abuse, all kinds of things. So they were sent off to a monastery. But after World War II, because of the explosion, the size of the church, um, they had to develop uh, standalone facilities. The closest one to Fresno was Cherry Valley, California. And it was a Servants of the Paraclete holding facility for guys that had uh, offended that they needed to get off the grid and and get away from contact with children. The number one thing when you talk to these priest uh, offenders is if they're not near their target population, then they don't feel the the drive to sexually assault hmm. and so isolation is the is the number one the best defense you know right. Tascadero is an example on the criminal side uh, that we have in California the other uh, piece of it is the um, the treatment facilities tried everything uh, possible they tried masses doses of uh, of uh, female hormones. Uh, to try to kill the sex drive. It doesn't do it. They tried castration. It doesn't do it. Um, When a a priest is focused on child sexual assault, it is not a a physical thing that you can do uh, to to change them. It is an inherent piece of who they are. Mm -hmm. And this is what um, Father Fitzgerald, the servants of the paraclete, this is what Dr. Bracelin, Dr. Bartemeyer, Richard Seip, you know, all people who, who've been, who were at this for decades, um, that's what they found. And you've got to remember that the church has, uses these facilities so that they can then study their priest offenders to understand them better. Oh. So that the first study was actually in 1961 at the Seton Institute in Baltimore. And this study uh, looked at a hundred priests that were in trouble that were sent there, 
And, you know, they started coming to conclusions on what they needed to do. And they came to the conclusion that isolation was the best uh, modem to be able to protect children and to stop the priests from offending. So what they did is they bought an island in the Caribbean. And the servants of the paraclete were going to start this up in the 1960s. But then the Holy See found, the Pope found out about it. And they said, oh, my goodness, this is going to be a public relations mm, disaster. Right. Oh. And then they, they, they shut that down. And so what they then did is they decided to do the geographic solution and just simply keep reassigning these priests, spread, spread the trash, and, and just basically close their eyes and hope it goes away. Well, I mean, is that what they were doing, hoping it goes away? Because let's assume that... Let's assume that some of the cardinals and the bishops, and they knew that, you know, that this was wrong, the behavior was wrong, we can't send them to a treatment facility, so do they move them because they're, they're good at raising money, or they move them, move them because they don't want a scandal? It's a combination of both. Um, if, if the guy, if the scandal becomes known in public or quasi-public, you know, for instance, when the president of Gonzaga University in 1969, when he was about to be arrested, they moved him. They mm. moved him that morning. He really? was gone. So <laughs> they will, they will, uh, Jesuit priests, and so they, they absolutely will do whatever is necessary uh, in order to protect the, the institution. If, it, you know, if the scandal is not known and they can contain it and, and they can package it up, and not move it because sometimes moving the problem creates a problem. Mm. It doesn't relieve the problem. If you can keep the guy there for a long period of time and uh, kind of cut your losses in keeping that person there, then that's what they'll do as well. Mm. How was it? How how was it over the years? I've read where, well, at least the allegations are that young men. I mean, we're going back into the 70s or 80s. The young men would 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 report abuse to their church, and then it was it never went to the police department. Was was that not part of church protocol that we would handle it here first? Handle it internally, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. The protocol yeah. in the in the 50s, and that's why there are reports in the files uh, in the 1950s as well. Um, that the um, you, you know the uh, the pattern was to the avoidance of scandal. That was the policy. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, well, you you had mentioned the secret archives, secret files. What yep. are those? Canon. Well, Canon four eighty nine. The church has its own legal system. Remember, the church is its own foreign country, and uh, like every country, they they have a legal system, and it's called the Code of Canon Law. And the the most recent edition is from 1983, and that code section is 489 on the secret archives. And that's, you know, that's what they call it. They call it the secret archives. This is the most sensitive material that the uh, chancellor of the diocese is to maintain. And the the only people that have access to it are the bishop and the vicar general and the chancellor. That's it. Wow. And... um, and the you know I know some people will think well this is nuts why would you keep evidence of criminal activity in your business records right. and the point for them is that 
as you know, bishops in Fresno come and go. It's you know in a bishop's career, it's usually the first diocese they're assigned to. I mean, look at Cardinal Manning. Manning started out in Fresno and ended up in L.A. You look at uh, uh, Mahoney. Mahoney went from Fresno to Stockton to uh, to L.A. as well. And so you know the 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 whole idea is that you leave the evidence for your successor to be able to make informed decisions about what's happening. Hmm without having to have a conversation. Right. Oh, interesting. So that the record is there. Right. And so the new bishop comes in, one of the first things they do is is part of their normal uh, program is they sit down with the staff and they sit down and they go through um, uh, all of those various records so they can understand the personnel that they have. Mm -hmm. So that if something comes to them, that the bishop, remember, the bishop is the only one that has the authority to make any decisions about priests in the diocese. So therefore, if there is something in the file, they already have pattern and practice evidence about, you know, if uh, uh, what is normal behavior for this guy. Mm-hmm. So then if the bishop gets information, they can make an informed decision immediately because they already have the context they already have the history of that particular guy. Because hmm. remember, in the Roman mind, an ordained priest is more important than any layperson and certainly more important than any individual single child. Explain that. Explain that well, for us laymen or the non-Catholics out here. In, in, the, in the Roman system, the, uh, the priest is the one who delivers the sacraments. The priest is a representative of Jesus Christ on earth. He is the one that delivers the sacraments that is the pathway to salvation for all the individual Catholics. And they are literally altar Christus, you know, the the rock of Christ in that particular spot. They are the teacher. They are the administrator. They are literally the judge on on all things moral, right? Mm. And because you, the, they are to be the beacon of light for for that particular group. And it is, it's an iconic uh, position that uh, all power basically in the parish resides in the pastor, and all power in the diocese resides in the bishop, and all power in the church universal resides in the pope. Does that explain it's very, very simple? That it's interesting. Does that explain in some way an individual's devotion to a, a priest who's been accused? Their reluctance to say that. In in other words, they're saying, "I'm so I have I have spent my adult life developing this this terrific relationship with this man of God, this man, this representative of God, so to speak, who might." Who knows? May help me get in, get in, get in heaven. Uh, would that explain their reluctance to give that up? To say, you know, to to look at a relationship and a charge like this selfishly on how it might benefit them as opposed to justice for the accuser, and say, well, I don't want to give this guy up because uh, he's done so much for me, and this makes me feel good about where I'm going. Yeah, the, you know, for for the individual person, the the priest really is uh, that beacon. He uh, he is their you know confessor. He has heard all of their sins that they have confessed over the years. He is the one that has been encouraging to them 
in in times of you know difficult times, whether it's uh, death or tragedy, you know who who does the baptisms, who does the marriages, who does the burials? It's the priest. Mm-hmm. You know, in those key moments in in a person's life as you're transitioning uh, through all of these things, and you know who is the one person that is dedicates their entire life to the flock but the priest they have, you know they have no one else right their whole life is to be dedicated to to the parish and um most uh most priests are really fantastic and they are great spiritual leaders and they help the community and they give way more than they get right mm-hmm. and so they're they're they deserve a position of honor they really do it's a, it's that there is a percentage of priests, um, you know, everyone debates the number of uh, how many sex offenders, whether it's six percent or up to twelve percent, whatever the operating number is in in each of the dioceses, um, that that have gone and absolutely obliterated that trust and you know raped and sodomized kids, and that those are the facts, and and no nobody really wants to be able to um, uh, be able to uh, absorb that because there's a lot of trauma there. The community, unfortunately, has to now endure. The diocese was silent for all of these decades, and now all of a sudden this year they dropped the bomb of, you know, nearly 60 perpetrators in the diocese. Yeah, right, right. Instead of being honest year by year, you know, on the, the frailties and the humanity of the priest. So instead of focusing on the divinity, if they would have focused a little bit on the humanity of the priest, then we wouldn't have this shockwave going through the community. Yeah, shockwave's a good good name for it. Did uh, Bishop Brennan posted some a video on YouTube from the from Fresno yesterday explaining the release of the list in which he basically read his press release again? Did you see that by any chance? I did not. I did see the press release a couple of days ago, though. What did you think of the press release? You know, he's doing what he can. Um, I don't know as if uh, he has the ability to be completely um, straightforward with everything. you got to remember, he's been raised through the Roman system. He was trained in Los Angeles under Mahoney. He knows um, the the fine line that he is it has to has to follow. Uh, he's got advisors that are telling him, I'm sure, to be absolutely silent and don't say a word. He's got other advisors saying, man, you know, to to really be the 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 bishop and the teacher here, you know, you, you need to release everything. Um, so you know, he's got all. He's an administrator. Yeah. He's got all kinds of uh, competing issues going on, and. Um, I don't think anyone in their right mind would want to be a Roman Catholic bishop in the 21st century. Right <laughs> Not at all. We're about out of time. I wanted to ask you one, one final question. Again, our guest today has been uh, Patrick Wall, who is a former Roman Catholic priest and Benedictine monk. He's been working on behalf of victims of clergy sexual abuse since 2002. As a former monk and priest yourself, has all of this, and now you're involved in in the church in a in a different way has it is it called into question your own faith no you know the 
the the good thing about being trained as a religious order guy is you don't get as ingrained in the institution and there isn't this mystical theology of the institution of the church you know the 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 faith uh as my dad used to say you know we can either have mass out in the public park or we can have mass at the basilica it really doesn't matter mm. and the, the faith is the faith in you know from the irish viewpoint uh, in the tradition that i was raised you know there have been some really dark days where the you know where the the church has been suppressed and where there have been some really ugly things that have happened um you know whether it's the crusades it's really hard to defend the crusades right yeah <laughs> and, and there's a lot of things that are indefensible and this is one of those pieces of our history that's completely indefensible um and i i uh i i hope that people are in their own spirituality, um, what I practice is a, a separation between the human institution and and true faith and spirituality. Absolutely. There you go. Patrick Wall has been our guest. Thank you, Patrick. We sure appreciate it, sir. All right. Thanks so very much. Okay. Thank you, sir. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Bakersfield Observe, the podcast with Richard Bean. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Centric Healthcare and King Door Company.